Why do we celebrate Easter? But what is the purpose of us gathering together for Easter Sunday? And what is the significance of worshiping on Easter? Now, I know we're good church people, and we're sitting in church, and and we have good church answers for the resurrection and the celebration of the resurrection, but let me take it a step further. Why do we celebrate the resurrection? Why is it so important that we, we talk about the fact that Jesus is alive? Do you realize that Christianity is the only mainline, mainstream religion that worships a living God? The only one. In Islam, they they worship a a God who has never set foot on earth as a person and prophets who are all dead. In Judaism, Judaism, they they don't have a God who has ever come in the flesh according to their understanding and certainly not a God who has died and resurrected. When, When you think about all the other religions around the world, all of them follow an adherent of someone who's passed away. But we serve the only God who has resurrected. Why is that important? Why does it matter? Every other religion doesn't seem to think it's that big of a deal. So why do we worship this morning a risen Savior? Well, the reason why we celebrate Easter is because the resurrection is the single most important event in Christian history. Actually, what is more is it is the single most important event in all of human history. There has never been an event that has ever shaped humanity more than the resurrection of Christ. And the reason why we celebrate Easter is because through the resurrection, humanity is able to overcome their most pressing problem. Now, I wonder as we gather this morning, what is your most pressing problem? I thought about that as I was getting ready for church this morning. What is my most pressing problem? And and I started thinking about all the things in my life that that I would like to see different. Things I'm working on changing and improving. And and things that are are stressful, cause stress. Things that maybe are distractions to me this morning. This morning, I want you to ask yourself, what is my most pressing problem? What is it in my life I wish I could overcome? Maybe it's something with a relationship. Maybe it's something financially. Maybe it's something work-related or school-related. Maybe it's something else altogether. What problem in your life is your most pressing problem? What is it you're trying to overcome? We're going to come back to this question here a little later in the sermon. But I want it to be in our minds. Does Jesus' resurrection allow me to overcome my most pressing problem? problem. We're going to be reading in Mark chapter 16 verses 1 through 8. I I would encourage you to follow along on the screen or if you have a copy of God's word in front of you, you can follow along Mark 16 verses 1 through 8 together as we read about the resurrection of Christ. Mark tells us when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And here's the most understated statement in our passage this morning. It was very large. 
In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. As we read about the resurrection event in Mark chapter 16, it certainly is an event that marked the women who were present with with fear and astonishment. Something miraculous had taken place, and they knew it was important, so much so that they were dumbstruck. They couldn't speak, and they refused to say a word until they found the disciples. They recognized this was an event that would change everything. Jesus had overcome. This morning, I want to look at what Jesus had overcome and what that means for you and I. Through the resurrection, what did he overcome that we look to overcome as well. And the first thing we find that Jesus overcame was death. Jesus overcame death. There's a a long-standing debate that goes back 2,000 years almost of the question, did Jesus really die and come back to life? And is that actually possible? Is it possible to have someone dead and be revived? Now I will say, medically speaking, this happens more frequently than we probably realize that someone loses their heartbeat and is revived back to life in a matter of minutes. But can someone be deceased for three days and be resuscitated? Can someone be dead and resurrected? Science says no. Science says it is impossible to have someone dead for three days and be resuscitated. The scientific method would say if you're going to prove something to be true, you must be able to test it and repeat it. And nobody can test and repeat the resurrection after a three days of death. Now, I will point this out, that Jesus is not against science. As a matter of fact, I believe that Jesus used the scientific method throughout his ministry, and wouldn't you know it, he raised at least three people from the dead back to life. It is tested and repeatable by our God. He can do it. And so we see that that while we cannot fathom a resurrected Christ, Scripture teaches us clearly that Jesus overcame death. There are a lot of theories about how Jesus might have have faked his death or faked his resurrection. And, And really the Bible actually talks about some of these myths that we have heard. Maybe you've heard some people argue this way. Maybe you've heard people say the disciples went and stole the body so that they could say he was alive. Actually, if you read in Luke's account, this is exactly what we find the Jewish people accusing the disciples of doing. They're saying, let's pay the guards to say the disciples came and stole the body. There's one problem with this. The disciples were not a brave group of men to charge a Roman tomb and steal a heavily guarded body. As a matter of fact, they were a bunch of cowards. Where are the 12 disciples at this point in the story? If you 
try to find them, you'll find one of them actually betrayed Christ and had so much guilt and shame over it, he has committed suicide. So he certainly was not involved in the raid of the body. We find the unofficial spokesman, Peter, for the group, who has spent the night in shame because he audibly, verbally, and with cursing denied the fact that he even knew who Jesus was. We see the other ten disciples nowhere to be found. They're not present anywhere around the tomb. As a matter of fact, we don't even read about the disciples coming to the tomb until after these three women approach the tomb. This is not a group of men who are are leading a charge to steal a body against a bunch of Roman guards. I'm behind in my movie watching, I'll admit, so I've just started watching the Marvel movies. I've got a father-in-law who who has all of them. So I'm all the way back in like 2002 or 2004. But I just recently watched Captain America, the first one, and it was really awesome to watch this super soldier lead a group of about 50 men and charge into enemy territory and, and, and save these people. I watched him boldly and bravely conquer his fears and and overtake the enemy. And and I think this is how the Jewish people are painting the disciples, right? Charging the tomb with their Captain Israel shield and defeating all of the Romans, stealing the body and making up a lie. But that's not the picture that we have of the disciples. They're cowards, they're chicken, they're deniers, they're absent. There is no way that these 11 disciples left would have had the strength or the courage to conquer Roman guards. There's also a theory that that perhaps these women came to a different tomb. It wasn't Jesus' tomb. Jesus' tomb was about a half a mile away, and they came to the wrong tomb. They found it empty, and they mistakenly thought, well, Jesus is risen. And so they started a rumor. There's a problem with that as well. Because if they went to the wrong tomb, how easy would it have been for the Jewish officials to say, stop for a second, we've got a body here in this tomb over here to show you. Jesus is still in the tomb. They got the wrong one. But we don't find that. As a matter of fact, we find the Jewish officials admitting that the tomb is empty. Saying, the body is not there, we have to cover it up with a lie. No, it's very clear that the women found the right tomb and there was no body. And that is confirmed even by the Jewish people. There are others who will say, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He fainted and he passed out. And so while he was unconscious, they put him in the tomb. They rolled the stone in there. And and after a little while, he he came to and he he started gaining consciousness again. and, And here he was alive after three days of being unconscious. There's a major problem with that. And maybe you're picking up on it already. First of all, uh, Jesus Christ was on a cross crucified by professional executioners. These were men who, for a living, killed people. As a matter of fact, they they knew how to do it so well that that they were experts, and, and we can see that they could confirm whether someone was living or dead, even in the events of Scripture. Jesus was crucified with three, uh, in a group of three crosses the two criminals to either side, and Christ. And Towards the end of the crucifixion, they wanted to speed things along, so they went to check on whether the men were alive or dead. And the two criminals they found were still alive. So they break their legs so that they will collapse and suffocate. They come to Jesus Christ, and these expert executioners 
know immediately that he is not alive and there's no need to break his legs. The the experts of the day, the Roman executioners have confirmed that Jesus Christ indeed was dead. What is more, the endurance of the cross and even the beatings before the cross, if it wouldn't have killed Jesus, would have left him in such a weakened state that coming to life would have been difficult to walk, let alone, let alone move a large stone out of place. We forget that it wasn't just the crucifixion that Jesus endured. But when he faced Pilate, he faced extreme beatings. What we find is that, that Pilate did not want to execute him, so he, he told them to beat and flog him. But often before a crucifixion, this beating and this flogging that took place was so severe that there was no need for a crucifixion. The beatings were often so severe that it, it killed the prisoner before they ever got to the cross. Jesus endured the beatings, endured the cross, and even assuming that he would have survived and been buried alive, he would not have had the strength to stand, let alone move multiple tons of rock away from the tomb. No, Jesus indeed was dead and resurrected. The last theory is that this was all a made-up story. That as you read Mark chapter 16, or as you read Matthew chapter 28, or as you read Luke chapter 24, or John chapter 20, and you you read about the resurrection, that these are four men that, that collaborated and made up a story together. Let's write this myth. And let's even invent these truths. But, but it's funny to me that if this was something man-made and man-written, they did a really bad job of writing it. They painted the disciples out to be cowards. Now, if I'm writing this and I'm one of the disciples like like Matthew, if I'm uh, friends with the disciples like Luke, if I'm I'm a part of this story, I'm not writing that, that we all scattered and hid. Secondly, if I'm wanting people to read this and take this seriously, I'm not sending women to find the body. This is first century truth here. Women's testimony was not valid in a court of law. Now, fair or unfair, that is how the first century functioned. And so as they're writing this down, I can just picture if they're writing a myth. Okay, guys, we've got to make up a story. Let's start off with this. Let's start off that that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that three women... Whoa, 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 wait a second. (laughs) Women? Yeah, let's say these three women came and they're going to be the first ones to give testimony that Jesus is alive. I imagine the other disciples sitting around saying, nobody believes the testimony of a woman. Let's not use women. And they argue back and forth. And finally, okay, fine. Have it your way. Let's talk about these three women. What three women are you going to send to the tomb? Well, one of them needs to be Mary Magdalene. What? Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene is not only a woman. She has the worst reputation of anyone in town. This is the same Mary Magdalene that had seven demons in her. This is the same Mary Magdalene that the rumors are that she's a prostitute. You're going to send her to be the first ones to report that Jesus is alive? This is the worst myth and legend ever written in the history of myths and legends. Nobody will believe you. There is no way that the disciples could make the story of the resurrection up the way they did. Now, if they were writing it, they would have been the heroes to come and conquer. They would have been the ones to hear the story They would have been the ones to to spread the word. They would have painted themselves out to be the hero. 
What we find is these myths about Jesus' resurrection all fail logical understanding. The most logical explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus overcame death. It's not just Scripture that teaches us Jesus is alive. History teaches us that Jesus died and rose again. I I think I get a lot of blank looks when I tell lost people that history confirms this truth. But there's a, a Hebrew historian named Josephus. Go home and Google Josephus. And he wrote, not of Christian faith, but of Jewish history. Not of someone who believed in the Messiah, but of someone who just wanted to get the facts of the people of Israel and write them down. And he writes explicitly about Jesus Christ. He writes emphatically that they crucified him and he died. And he writes as fact that three days later he was seen alive again. This is outside of scripture. This is history. All logic, all reason, all understanding points to the truth that Jesus overcame death. So all of this seems kind of trivial when we think about it. Because Jesus was not the first one to be risen from the dead. I already mentioned he miraculously rose at least three people in his ministry from the dead. So here he is, the fourth. In the Old Testament, we see dry bones that have been dead for long periods of time. God miraculously puts flesh on them and brings them back to life. All of these miraculous things have taken place before. What is the significance that Jesus overcame death? Well, the significance is what it does for you and I. And that is Jesus overcame sin. I've never seen anyone come to Christ because they were convinced about the facts of Jesus' resurrection. In all my years of ministry, I've never sat down and told someone the certainty of Jesus' death and his resurrection that made them come to Christ. But I've never seen anyone come to Christ who has not understood the effects of that resurrection. All of the facts of his death and his life will not change your mind. But this truth is life-changing. That Jesus Christ died for your sins. He rose again to give you life. Regardless of what you perceive your most pressing problem to be, the reality is the only eternal problem that you and I deal with is this problem of the consequences of sin. This truth that our our sin leads to death, both physically and eternally. And it's only through Christ that we see our problem of sin overcome. The truth is, Jesus Christ did not come to earth to look at us and ignore our sin. Jesus Christ came to earth to pay for our sin. It is his death and his resurrection that overcomes your sin and my sin. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary to Romans, tells about a young Russian man. He was the son of a friend of Tsar Nicholas. And this young man was caught stealing from the Tsar. As a treasure of this border fortress, this man was responsible to manage the Tsar's money and to dispense the salary to the troops. But he began gambling, and as he lost money, he tried to recover his money by stealing from the treasury. So one day, he heard that a government official was coming to examine his books. 
And he sat down and he added up all that he had taken out. And then he, he tried to repay with everything he owned back into the treasury and saw what a great discrepancy there was. And so after he paid all that he could afford to pay back, under the amount due, he wrote these words, a great debt, who can pay? He knew he couldn't pay it. He knew of no one who could help him. And so he took a pistol and decided at midnight he would take his own life. As he waited for the clock to strike midnight, he grew tired and weary from the stress, no doubt, and he fell asleep. And while he slept, Tsar Nicholas himself paid a surprise visit to inspect this young man's books. When he looked at the books and he saw the note written on the bottom, he, he realized that the young man had betrayed him. He realized that the young man had, had stolen and deserved all that would be coming to him. But rather than arrest the young man, Tsar had mercy on him. He stopped and wrote, next to the man's note and quietly left. When the young man woke up, he picked up the gun again and was about to take his own life when he noticed something added to his note. He read, A great debt, who can pay? And then next to it was a single word, Nicholas. The next morning, a bag of coins arrived from Nicholas that covered the exact amount of the young man's debt. I wonder, can we see ourselves in that story? Can, can we pen those words as we look at our own life? A great debt. Who can pay? When we realize the magnitude of, of our lives, and we try to weigh out the good and the bad, can we recognize that, that our sin pulls us so far away that there is a chasm, a chasm that neither you or I could cover on our own? Some of us try to, to overcome sin on our own and we, we throw our own amount of debt to it. Our good works, if you will. We do everything in our power to, to try to outweigh our sinfulness and what we find, just like the young man. Every single time, we find ourselves writing the words, a great debt, who can pay? We celebrate Easter and the resurrection because next to our note is not the name of any normal man, but it's the name of Jesus Christ. Who can pay our debt? Who can overcome our sin? Christ and Christ alone. I love 2 Corinthians verse 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we think about the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, we recognize that Jesus Christ took our place and paid our debt. But what is more is he didn't just remove our sin, he gave us his life. In Christ, when God looks at you, he does not see you, he sees his son. And that's why Jesus' victory on the cross is my victory. Jesus' life is my life. Jesus' resurrection is my resurrection. Jesus' righteousness is my righteousness. 
we have victory, not because of our own strength, but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why don't we all experience this victory? Why do we push aside the resurrection in our own lives? I think there are many reasons. I've talked recently with with someone here at this church about a a statistic that says somewhere around 50 to 70% of people who sit in church pews are not believers in Jesus Christ. Statistically, nationwide would say only 30% of people who regularly come to church have actually trusted in the victory of Christ. Why is that? Well, I think several reasons. One is, is we don't want the victory to be won for us. We want the victory ourselves. We want to work hard enough. We want to do good enough. We want to be what we're supposed to be. And the American dream, which is a wonderful dream, is counter to the gospel. The American dream says work hard and you'll earn it. The gospel says that may be true with your finances, but it will not work for your sin. We have this inward desire, this inward thought, that if we can just be good enough, we want people to view us as good enough that we don't rely on Jesus for the victory. We want to be good all on our own. Secondly, I think that that leads us to be too prideful to admit that we need Jesus at all. I wonder how many people sit in a pew every Sunday morning knowing that God is speaking to their heart but, but are too prideful to make that publicly known. But what will people think if they see me come to the altar and pray? People will assume something's wrong in my life. What will people say if I publicly profess that I've accepted Christ? They will have assumed I've done that years ago, and I can't have them thinking any different. What would people think of me if I was obedient when they assumed I was being obedient all along. I wonder how many of us sit Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month, too prideful to let people see that we need a Savior. I think for many of us, it's because we're, we're too afraid of what might have to change in our life. We're much like the rich young ruler during Jesus' ministry who came and said, I want to follow you wherever you go. What must I do? And Jesus says, well, I want you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Jesus says, I want you to make some changes in your life. You can't be selfish anymore. You can't hoard things on your own. I want you to be generous and loving and give. Maybe Jesus comes to you and you say, Lord, I want to follow you, whatever you tell me to do. But he looks in your heart and he says, there's sin in your life. I want you to change. And much like that, rich young ruler we walk away sad because we can't let go well i i know you want me to change things in my life but but can i hold on to this one thing what we end up doing is we sacrifice eternity for just a a moment's breath of life we say our, our eternal state is not near as important as our our momentary pleasures and we refuse to acknowledge christ because of our fear of what might change and then finally I think some of us don't experience a victory in Christ because we don't truly believe that Jesus can forgive us pastor if you only knew what I've done if you've only known what's going through my heart and mind even as you speak if you only know what I've looked at if you only know what I've touched 
you only know where I've been, you would understand that my sin cannot be forgiven. Let me remind you that Jesus Christ did not come so that you can have a pity party for your sin. He did not come so he can look at you and and ignore your sin or, or blindly turn his eye. No, he came so that you don't have to experience your sin. This morning, there is victory because of the resurrection. There is life because of the life of Christ. And there is nothing that should keep us from throwing off all of our pride, all of our fear, all of our our selfishness, throwing everything aside to say, Lord, I need your victory this morning. Jesus Christ has overcome. He's overcome death to bring you life. He's overcome sin to give you freedom. And he wants his victory this morning to be your victory. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the cross and I thank you for the empty tomb. Lord, the fact that you're alive gives me life. The fact that that you died on a cross means I don't have to die for my sins. Lord, I pray that every individual in here would experience your victory through the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.